There's so much in the book of Psalms. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 27, a Psalm of David. And I will read the Psalm for us, then I'll pray, and then we will dive in together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn, your, turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We come now to your words, seeking those words of eternal life. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand, a hope to believe, and a spirit to obey. Give us this with your counsel, O Lord. Amen. Amen. So what do you do, you do as a family after a week like this past week? If you haven't melted already, how do you stay cool as a family? Maybe you go to the beach, maybe you go to the pool, maybe you don't go outside at all. One summer, my family decided it was a good idea to go on a whitewater rafting trip. So I am the youngest of four boys, so we like adventure. And so if you've never been whitewater rafting before, let me walk you through the process of how you get started. So first, you get huddled into a room all together before a very excited guide who tells you all the ways that you are about to possibly die. And then you sign, off, you sign a waiver that basically waves all your rights away and your kids and everything, all your possessions, that you can't sue them. <laughs> then they give you a false sense of security as they give you a helmet and a life vest and a paddle. And then now you're ready. And here you are, on the water. 
And so they usually will start you off on an easy part, and you learn the commands together as you row together on one side and the other. And you're like, this isn't so bad. And then you hit a rapid, and you're like, oh, this is what I signed up for. <laughs> so this particular time, it had been raining all week before we went, which meant that these rapids were now Category 5 rapids, which is not good <laughs> if it's your first time going down a rapid. And so our guide warned us as we went around this bend that we were about to hit a particularly hard rapid, that there was going to be a rock that we might hit, and if so, it would make a jolt and someone might fall out of the raft. And so here we go, and we're going through, and we're working together, doing our commands, and we hit the rock, of course, and I kind of stabilize, I feel a jolt, I reach to my left, I reach to my right, trying to see who else is in the, the raft with us. My parents are there, my brothers are there, it looks okay, but you can tell someone's missing. Who has fallen out of the raft? It's not me, it's not my family, it is the guide. <laughs> the guide fell out of our raft. So here we are on a Category 5 rapid with no guide, and I am looking around and noticing that the other guides in the other rafts are very terrified, and their fear is transferring to me, and I'm realizing this isn't a part of the plan. This is not supposed to happen. And I began to feel helpless, fearful, and anxious. And maybe you felt that way before. Maybe you didn't volunteer to put yourself in a similar situation. But when the rapids of life come our way, we feel fearful and afraid. And we believe deep down that maybe God has fallen out of our raft. Maybe he is absent or distant from us. Life throws rapids at us, right? It just takes... One conversation, one phone call, one diagnosis, one moment. And we are shocked up out of the ordinary, and all we can do is pull ourselves out of the water and try and catch a breath. When the rapids hit, we cling for control, and we become anxious, and ultimately we fail to trust Jesus. We look at the back of our raft and we say, Jesus, are you there? Where are you? Give me the paddle back, Jesus. If I was in control of this rapid, Jesus, we'd be going down a lazy river. We wouldn't be going down these rapids. But that is why this psalm today is so powerful. Because it deals with the harsh realities of life that we really experience. The psalmist David expresses very real and tangible fears. A loss of control of enemies that are out for his demise. Of circumstances where he feels abandoned and all alone. And so where is God in these moments when we experience them? Has he abandoned us? Has he distanced himself from us? But David provides us with an answer. Throughout this amazing psalm, David expresses a powerful confidence despite his circumstances. This is a psalm of confidence after all. David is anchored in the truth that God is present with him. And not only is he present with him, he embraces him. Despite his circumstances, David is anchored in the embrace of the Father. Jonathan Edwards once famously said that you can know honey in two ways. You can know the exact chemical makeup of honey, or you can taste honey. And in the same way, so it is with the embrace of God, with his, with his presence with us. We can taste it and experience the embrace of God, and it will be an anchor to us. What if we knew this truth? What if we tasted the embrace of God? How would that change us? And we're going to see three ways that it will change us this morning from the psalm. The embrace of the Father gives us first confidence, 
The embrace of the Father gives us sanctuary. And finally, the embrace of the Father gives us courage. Despite the rapids of life, confidence, sanctuary, and courage in the arms of our Father. So look with me, if you will. First, that the embrace of the Father brings us confidence. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Do you notice anything, any repetition in these first three verses? Do you notice the words fear and afraid? Three times we see that in verses 1 through 3. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Down in verse 3, my heart shall not fear. Now, did David have very real things to be afraid of? Think about David. He is a king back in the ancient Near East. That sounds like a little bit of a terrifying job, wouldn't it to you? That out of nowhere, you could have an enemy kingdom coming up on your doorstep and sieging you and sweeping away cities at any moment's notice. And not only that, if you know the story of David, there wasn't just threats from the outside, there was threats from inside his own camp. Betrayals from his own family. Betrayals from within. There was a lot for King David to be afraid of. And he describes some of those, trial, those trials. Look at verse 2. Notice how he describes these people who are against them. When evildoers assail me to, to eat up my flesh. Almost kind of describing them like wild animals who are out to attack him. And then he goes on to say that there is an army that is surrounding him. And not only that, that war is at his very doorstep. And later we read down in verse 10, if you go to it, even he even goes to say that his father and mother have forsaken him. He's been abandoned by his family. And then look at verse 12. False witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. People are lying about him. They're out for his demise. They're saying things about his character and his reputation. He is alone. And yet, we see verse 3. The final words of verse 3. What do you read there? Yet I will be afraid? No. Yet I will be confident. How is this possible? Well, look back at verse 1. Notice the three images that David leaves us with of his Lord. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. And the Lord is my stronghold. Think of first of a light. Why would a light be so significant? David, you know, grew up as a shepherd. Imagine caring for the flock. Having light with you means life, does it not? It keeps you safe from predators. It keeps you safe from the elements. And then David went on to be a soldier, and under the cover of darkness, right, that's where our enemies can ambush us at any moment. With light, we have life. With light, we have protection. It brings safety and knowledge and security. Think of a little child who has a nightlight in his room when he's afraid. He looks to his nightlight. John picks up this imagery in 1 John. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This light is Jesus, the light of the world. He is our security, even in the valley of the shadow of death. And not only is the Lord his light, he is his salvation. It is his deliverance. One commentator I read said that if you had been captured and you were behind enemy lines, you would want to know that SEAL Team 6 was on the way to rescue you, right? But how much more so should we feel that way about our Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, that he will deliver us? And not from our circumstances even, but from sin and death, as we know. And further, we see... David describes the Lord as his stronghold. 
his, hall, his high, tall walls that he can hide behind. No matter what the enemy throws against these walls, he is safe and protected behind the walls of the, the stronghold. In the arms of his father, no matter what these enemies throw against him, he is protected. But notice one more thing in these verses. Notice what he's, the, the intimate manner that he's speaking. The Lord is my light. Not just a light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. This is very personal and intimate, the way that he's speaking. He has had this experience very personally. He has experienced the embrace of God. He knew that God was with him. And despite his circumstances, he knew that God was not distant and he was not aloof. And recently, as I mentioned, I was studying for my ordination exams and I was studying for my history exam, which that in itself is a terrifying thing that causes fear for me, right? If you know anything about what I just endured. But I found many powerful stories that were very encouraging to me. That's one of the beautiful things about studying church history. And one such story is a figure that probably many of you know is Martin Luther, very famous for nailing the 95 Theses, as you may know. But one thing maybe you're not as familiar with is in, he went through a very important trial in his life. You see, he was summoned before the very emperor of the entire region. And he was called before at the Diet of Worms in 1521. And so here's Luther standing before all these powerful men. And he's there because he's going to be asked two questions. One, did he write all of these books that is right before him? And two, is he willing to recant all the things that he said? And Luther knows that if he doesn't recant, there's a very serious, realistic possibility that as a result, he's going to be burned at a stake. Because he had said all these things about the abuses of the papacy, about his view of scripture, about justification of faith. And so the first day, Luther was there in front of the trial, and he could barely even say a word. People couldn't really understand him. And so he asked, let me have one more day to think on how I will respond to this question. And so Luther comes back after one day of contemplating, and these are his famous words that he said before the representative of the emperor. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to God's word. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. What a powerful statement. Luther didn't know if he was going to leave that room and immediately be killed, burned, tortured. He didn't know what was going to happen. But in that moment, after a day of contemplating, after a day of prayer, in the face of great pressure, Luther held on to the Lord. He left that, and witnesses say that he left that like a man who had just run a marathon. And indeed, in some ways, he had. And he lifted it, he had his hands above his head and he was saying, I am finished. I am finished. He had just gone through the trial and come out faithful. And he did that because he was holding tightly onto the Lord who was holding him the whole time. The light, his salvation, his stronghold through that trial. We know fear like that, don't we? We are well acquainted with fear. Maybe for you, this is a fear of losing control or losing your job, or of the economy and entering recession, you're sitting there watching your retirement accounts wilt and wilt and wilt, and you're fearful of what the future may hold for you. Maybe you fear a diagnosis or health, or maybe it is a lack of success or a fear of failure. What are the greatest sources of fear in your life right now? And what is your normal pattern for responding to these fears? 
You know, I also am very plagued by fears. Joel mentioned last week that I had one very fearful occurrence that some of you know about. I went to our rental uh, company there, ready for a mission trip. I had reserved a van four months in advance. I arrive, come to the counter, and then they tell me that they don't have a van for us, that they are all taken. And I kind of inwardly was like, I don't think you know what reservation means. <laughs> but here I was standing there, and in this moment, I'm running through all these fears and anxieties that maybe I have to cancel this trip, that I have to call these parents, and they're going to think I'm you know, administratively incompetent, you know, they're never going to trust me again with their kids. And then, of course, what happens? 24 hours later, we get a van, and everything's fine. Lily's able to come with us now. She's really going to have to fly. We were able to get supplies from the church that wasn't going to be able to be in the van with us. So many things, thing after thing after thing on a trip, it completely came together, and there was all these divine, providential moments that happened. But in the moment, was that what I was thinking about? I was like, God's got us. This will be divine providence. Everything's going to work for good. No, I was terrified. I was like, am I really going to have to call these parents? I've got to call Joel. I've got to call David. All these things are going through my head. And what was the reality? I wasn't in control. But am I ever in control? No. But who was in control? God was in control. He was my light. He is my salvation. He is my stronghold, even in those moments when I forget. And maybe you understand that. Joel reminded us a few weeks ago in his sermon about suffering and hope that we are not promised in this life comfort. We are not promised in this life an absence of trials or persecution. But we are promised something. And that is that our hope is secure in Jesus. Our confidence is in Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will not forsake us. As Scripture says, if God is with us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? But the embrace of the Father, it not only brings us confidence, it also brings us sanctuary. Look with me at verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. What a powerful statement by David there. If you could inquire, if you could ask of one thing of the Lord, what would you ask? What a powerful question. Maybe you would ask for wisdom. Maybe you've got a lot of important decisions coming up. Maybe you'd like to be debt-free for once. Please, Lord, just forgive my student loans. Or maybe you'd say, God, will you just lower the gas prices, please? (laughs) Maybe you desire healing. What did David desire? presence. He desired a very personal experience of the Father, to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon his beauty. Look later at verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. He seeks the Lord's face. This is a very personal, very intimate experience. And this is a very serious thing, too, as well, if you know anything about scripture. Like, could you just go and live in the temple? No, right? Only one high priest could go into the most holy of holies, and that was only on Yom Kippur. You can't just ask for this, David. And think about what God told Moses about seeking his face. He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. This is a holy God. This is a serious thing to come into his presence. But David knew this reality. He was very aware of his sin, and he was very aware of the holiness of God. But deep 
down, he was also most aware of his deepest longing in life. He longed for sanctuary, and we do too. He longed to fall exhaustedly in the arms of his Lord and to fall and be at peace in his Lord's arms, the safety of his temple. Look at verses 5 and 6. Notice all the ways that David describes the Lord's protection, the Lord's care over him. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Do you notice that? All these images of protection from the Lord. And how does David respond? Worship and joy. The Lord is his great protector. Despite his circumstances, despite his overwhelming circumstances, he knew the one place that would bring him real relief and true sanctuary was found in the arms of his father. When I think of sanctuary, one of the first images that comes to my mind is that of a campfire. If you've ever been out in the woods when it's completely dark and you're around a campfire, don't you feel safe around a campfire? Last year, I went on a hunting trip with two of my brothers, and we went into the public land in Missouri, and we were out hunting, and it, you know, it just snowed. It was really cold, really dark, and so one night we were doing a night hunt, and I was out by myself in the woods with my climbing stand, and usually, you guys know that in my hunting trips, usually what hunting is for me is just watching squirrels and uh, you know, kind of like taking notes on the life of what a squirrel does and how much noise it makes. Um, but somehow, by God's miracle, I actually got the opportunity to shoot a deer, which is what you're supposed to do. But I actually got to have that happen. And so there I was, sitting in my stand. I had just shot a deer, and I was waiting. And I was noticing the sun was setting. And I was looking at my phone and realizing that I had no cell phone reception, which is not a good combination. And so there I was in, land, in woods that I'd never been in. The sun is setting, and I have to go track a deer now with all my gear. And I'm far away from camp, and I'm by myself because my brothers are on other parts of the woods which is usually okay, right? Except, as soon as I get to my deer, what do I start hearing as darkness is setting in? But the yapping of coyotes, which is terrifying. It was so terrifying. And all of a sudden, my adrenaline shot up, and I was extremely nervous, and I'm making mistakes, and I'm tripping over things. And so here I am, dragging this deer backwards in complete darkness, tripping over everything behind me that is possible to trip on, dragging this deer towards the path that leads to camp, shouting for my brothers, just in a total panic. It's such a mess. But thankfully, eventually I found one of my brothers and were able to get me out of there and no coyotes bit me or anything. We were all good. But the relief I felt later on of sitting around a campfire with my brothers, laughing, making fun of myself and all the mistakes I had made, enjoying the fresh meat that we had just, we had just gotten, laughing, celebrating together, the rich community, the safety of a campfire, I had stumbled into that camp terrified, afraid, and panicked, right? But sitting by the fire with my brothers, what did I experience? Joy, laughter, community, safety, celebration, freedom from darkness, freedom from fear. That is sanctuary. That is the embrace of our Father toward us. Author James K. A. Smith wrote a book that I really enjoyed reading last summer, and it was called On the Road with St. Augustine. And he says this quote of Augustine's experience of the gospel. For Augustine, this was a hard-fought epiphany that emerged after trying everything else. 
After a long time on the road at the end of his rope, the Christian gospel for Augustine wasn't just the answer to an intellectual question, though it was that. It was more like a shelter in a storm, a port for a wayward soul, nourishment for a prodigal who was famished, whose own heart had become, he said, a famished land. It was, he would later testify, like someone had finally showed him his home country, even though he'd never been there before. It was the father he'd spent a lifetime looking for, saying to him, welcome home. Shelter in a storm, a port for a wayward soul, nourishment for a prodigal who was famished. Amen. For some of you, you may have stumbled into these doors this morning, famished, exhausted, afraid, desperate. And do you know what Jesus is saying to you? He's saying, welcome home. Welcome home, son and daughter. You are home. His arms are open wide, and he's looking to embrace you. And this is how David responded to that truth in Psalm 63, verses 1 through 3. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Do you respond like that today? Do you know the Father's embrace? And what is keeping you from enjoying his sanctuary this morning? The embrace of the Father. It not only brings us confidence, sanctuary, but lastly we see that it brings us courage. Look with me at verse 13. These are some of my favorite verses in all of the psalm, verses 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Look, notice the confidence in David's words there. Notice his confidence, his resolve of his Lord, that he will gaze upon the goodness of the Lord and that he would do so in the land of the living. You see, he had led, he had experienced the Lord's sanctuary and it had brought him to courage. Even though his circumstances would tell him anything but that, right? His circumstances could easily convince him that the Lord was not good, but the Lord was cruel. That the Lord was not with him. That the Lord had abandoned him. And that maybe David wasn't long for the land of the living. But notice his confidence. You see, David knows Yahweh. And he knows his embrace. As Yahweh has revealed himself in Exodus 34, as he tells us, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. David knew that this was his Lord and this was his character. And he seeks his face. Have you heard that phrase, the face of the Lord, before? Maybe you've heard it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. David was confident that no matter the circumstance, Yahweh was in his corner. And as Job said, even death could not separate him from his God. Even in death, he would experience goodness of the Lord after death. 
for all eternity. This is what Job says in Job 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. David has a similar confidence here. And look at his conclusion in verse 14. How does he conclude after all of this? What is his counsel to us and to himself? Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The Lord. Deliverance is coming. Sanctuary is coming. Do not fear. What is at the core of David's words here? What is at the core? That's hope, is it not? And that's a confident hope. Confident hope that is placed not in an idea and not in just a concept, but in the living God. One of my favorite pictures of hope comes from one of my favorite scenes in all of film, to be honest. And it comes from uh, Tolkien's second work, The Two Towers, and this movie by Peter Jackson. There's this one image that I think is just such a beautiful shot. And it comes in this moment where our heroes, are, of course, are stuck in a fortress, and they're being laid siege, and this, they're in this fortress that has never been overthrown in all of history, right? But of course, somehow, the enemy has managed a way to break through the walls. And in this scene where it seems like hope is beginning to fade and is going to be completely gone, they're in the inmost keep all huddled together, and the enemy is banging on the doors of the keep over and over and over, and hope seems to have gone. And then they look, and in the windowsill into the keep, they see sunshine starting to break through. And they remember the words of Gandalf. And on the fifth day, they're supposed to look to the east and see his coming. And you see that this, the, the music in the background in this moment starts to begin to build. It starts to kind of increase and increase and swell. And then we get this next shot that is just so beautiful. It goes to a peak that's overlooking this fortress, kind of giving us the big picture view. And what is at the peak overlooking this battle? But none other than this white figure on a white horse, and that's Gandalf. And then a second later behind him is a whole host of cavalry that is there. And then the music builds and builds and builds and builds and it reaches this moment where the cavalry charges down into the battle and the sun is shining at their back into the eyes of the enemies of darkness, blinding them. And then our heroes are saved. But it's such a beautiful moment of hope, of light overtaking darkness, of hope not being lost when it felt like everything was going wrong. Light had overcome. Deliverance had come. In a similar way, how do we wait when all, help, when all hope has faded? How do we be strong and take courage as David is urging us here, as he urges himself? Well, I think the key is in verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord. As Edward said earlier, right? Do you know the goodness of the Lord? Have you tasted it? Not just in the head knowledge, but have you tasted it as honey? Do you know the goodness of the Lord? Turn with me to Titus 3. We're going to see this exact same word used again in verses 4 of Titus 3. We're going to read it until verse 7. The goodness of the Lord. Starting in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, 
we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen? Amen. That is the goodness of the Lord there. And David had experienced it. It was the anchor of his confidence and the anchor of our hope. And it was none other than Jesus Christ, who is all over Psalm 27. You can't read Psalm 27 and miss Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. He is our stronghold. It is through His work that we are given salvation and deliverance. Not just from our enemies, but from sin and death. And it is in Him that we do not need to fear. He is the beauty of God. He is our shelter. He is our rock. He lifts up our head. He delivers us from our enemies. He does not cast us off or forsake us. Without Jesus, we have nothing. But with Him, we have everything. In closing, I wanted to share the final words of a hero of mine, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and a theologian who's famous for some of his writings, but is probably most famous for his resistance to the Nazis in Germany. Bonhoeffer was given an opportunity to actually leave Germany, to go to the United States to escape the war. But he got back on a boat and went back to Germany because he would not abandon the soul of Germany in its darkest hour. But this decision led to his imprisonment. So you know what he did in prison? He continued preaching. And he preached to his fellow prisoners. And during his final sermon before he was about to be executed, these were his final words according to a witness. This for me the end, the beginning of life. What courageous final words. And he penned these words that were later published after his death. So heaven is torn open above us humans, and the joyful message of God's salvation in Jesus Christ rings out from heaven to earth as a cry of joy. I believe, and in believing I receive Christ. I have everything. I live before God. In Jesus, we have everything. We have confidence. We have sanctuary and we have courage. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for these amazing words in this psalm, for the times when we feel hopeless, for the times when we feel like all is lost. Thank you for reminding us that in Jesus, we have everything. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.